Ahoy crew, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. I'm Brandon Hubner, this time bringing you episode 27, which I have called Odysseus Builds a Boat. Without any dissimulation today, let's get right back to where we left off last time. You may recall that last time we looked at the earliest colonies of Greece, those in and around modern-day Italy. Among the oldest identified so far was the colony of Pithecusae, situated on the island of Ischia, lying just off the Gulf of Naples. We looked at some of the archaeology associated with this island and the particular settlement there, but from this point we can follow the dotted line along which Greek settlement progressed, for the most part anyway. Last time I ever so briefly mentioned that the Greek colonists settled another area on the heels of their settlement at Pithecusae. Now, I wasn't planning to get entangled in the intricacies of Greek colonization, but, alas, fate seems to have had other things in mind for the both of us. The details have kept roping me back in as I read and research, and this medium being what it is, I get to pass those on to all of you. I hope that you won't mind all that much, and I do vow to put my heart into making it relevant, interesting, and as unique as can be from a podcasting approach. Here then is where I think we should start today, the trading settlement named Kumai. I ever so briefly alluded to it last time in listing some of the colonies that grew out of the early settlement at Pithecusae, and I think it deserves a bit more time than I had initially allotted it. In our present understanding of the archaeology and of what it reveals, Pithecusae was the first Greek settlement in the central Mediterranean. Cumae was the next step, the oldest Greek colony on the Italian mainland founded around 750 BCE but really also the logical next step for the Greeks in their progression. Kumai was situated on the northern end of the Bay of Naples, just across from the island of Ischia, where the original settlement had been anchored. It appears that Kumai was only ten years or so in the wake of Pithecusae, and just as the Euboean colony at Almina back in the Levant, had been a waypoint for the Phoenician alphabet to find its way into Greece, the colony at Cumae, on the Italian mainland, had a similar effect in plugging the Etruscans into the writing revolution. The islands off the mainland of Italy were one thing, especially the larger islands like Sicily and Sardinia. The boot itself was another thing altogether, and one facet of the difference is that the Etruscans called the mainland home. Sure, they had set up shop on some of the islands off the coast as well, but their central spine remained and continued to grow on the mainland of Italy, and it was with the settlement of Cumae and other Greek colonies on the mainland that Eastern ideas and items, like the alphabet, would find their way to the Etruscans via the early Greeks. 
this is yet another case of the electrical current flowing from the high point to the low point, if we want to touch on the metaphor that we used last time again. Now, the overall development of colonies and the spread of culture aren't technically our focus here, so, well, you know the drill by now. However, Thucydides did have some things to say in relation to Kumai and the role that it played in the Greek push for control of a water route in the central Mediterranean. Remember, the Phoenicians had solidified control of this area to a certain degree. Carthage lay just across the Strait of Sicily, with more colonies to the west, so the Phoenicians certainly had an interest in controlling this narrow point in the central Mediterranean. Back to Thucydides, though, to bring this whole region into a bit more focus. The Greeks had begun their colonization work further north, in and around the Bay of Naples, with Pithecusae and Cumae. We've already laid that out. We said last time, though, that they then filled in the road back to Greece proper, and the next step on that road back was around the island of Sicily, so to Sicily we now turn. The Phoenicians again were here first, and Thucydides tells that when the Greeks arrived and the Euboean colonists founded Naxos on the northeastern corner of the island, things began to change. The following year, after the founding, which by tradition was 733 BCE, not necessarily so in reality, but we can't say for sure, Anyway, the year after Naxos was founded, the same colonists established another colony further south along Sicily's eastern coast, the colony of Syracuse. The founding of these two colonies opened the avenue to several related points that will take some time to fully flesh out today. So just a warning that we'll be in the same general arena here, but we are going to meander just a bit. To get us started down the path, however circuitous it may prove to be today, let us rely a bit more on Thucydides. At the outset of Book 6 in his History of the Peloponnesian War, he outlines what he knows of the history of early settlement in and around the island of Sicily as a whole. While the Phoenicians were certainly the first settlers there in the Iron Age, archaeology has shown that the Mycenaeans were likely also present this far west back in the Bronze Age when they were dominant. With the arrival of the Greeks now in the Iron Age, the balance of power on Sicily and in the central Mediterranean would begin to shift. Thucydides tells us that the Chalcidians founded Naxos in the shadow of Mount Etna, and that Archias, who was one of the Heraclids from Corinth, he was the founder of Syracuse. Now, Corinth will come into play here as we move forward, so don't forget about them just yet. First, though, it's important for us to get the general idea of how Greek arrival in Sicily influenced the balances of power in the region, which is a shift that will have ramifications 
far down the line as we continue forward in the historical timeline. Thucydides says that prior to Greek arrival, that the Phoenicians had occupied, quote, promontories upon the sea coasts and nearby islands for purposes of trading with the Sicils. As you probably can surmise from the name there, the Sicils were the inhabitants of the eastern portion of the island, the native inhabitants. They were the ones whose name ultimately became attached to the island that we now call Sicily. Apart from that, though, as the Phoenicians mainly traded with them and with the mainland tribes, the Greek colonists took a more heavy-handed approach. When Archaeus from Corinth began to found Syracuse, he, quote, drove out the Sicils from the island upon which the inner city now stands, while after another few years, the founders of Naxos pushed south down the coast of Sicily and, quote, drove out the Sicils by arms and founded Leontini and afterwards Katana. Katana is modern-day Italy's Catania, and I doubt this parenthetical is necessary, but the colony Katana in the Greek tongue has no relation whatsoever to the Japanese sword of the same name but spelled with a K instead of a C. Anyway, I'm sorry for wasting your time with that one. Other Greek colonists founded Megara and other settlements along the eastern coast of Sicily. So in the whole, the Greeks had driven out the natives and taken control of almost the entire eastern seaboard of the island. The final piece for the Greeks came thanks to Kumai, back up north along the Italian mainland. Thucydides tells that the Greek colony of Zankel, now known as Messina, was founded by pirates from Kumai. This was a very smart place to locate the colony, as it solidified Greek control of eastern Sicily and gave them control of the Strait of Messina, and with it access to the Tyrrhenian Sea. The Greeks controlled the east of Sicily, mainly by forcing the natives out, and as I've alluded already, this approach stands in contrast to the Phoenician approach of largely trading with the natives, but not displacing or subjugating them. The fallout from the Greek arrival and residence in eastern Sicily is that, as Thucydides again puts it, quote, when the Hellenes began to arrive in considerable numbers by sea, the Phoenicians abandoned most of their stations, and drawing together, took up their abode in Matia, Solais, and Panoramas, because these are the nearest points for the voyage between Carthage and Sicily. As you no doubt again have surmised, the Phoenicians shifted to the westernmost extremity of the island, away from the Greeks, closest to the sea route to Carthage, and leaving a comfortable buffer of native inhabitants in the central portion of the island. Much of this Greek arrival and Phoenician shift to the western portion of the island occurred during the 740s to 700s, the latter half of the 8th century BCE. Before we move on next to look at Corinth, 
I should clarify that the Phoenicians and Greeks were not yet enemies per se on Sicily, nor were their spheres of activity hermetically sealed in any way. To a small degree, they interacted. Carthaginians even lived in Sicilian Greek cities, just as Sicilian Greeks lived across the sea in Carthage. At this point in the development of both Greek trade and Carthaginian trade, they didn't yet have enough overlap to bring them into direct conflict. The Greek focus was back east, as the Greek network was still focused on strengthening the connection between young Greek colonies in Sicily, Italy, and then the road in between there and mainland Greece itself. Carthage, meanwhile, was focused on the north-south axis between Sicily, Sardinia, and Carthage, which then connected more strongly back west and to the still active Phoenician metals trade in Iberia all the way over to Cadiz. That should be enough about the broad strokes for now. Let's go ahead and bring Corinth into the picture. Corinth became one of the early powerful cities in Greece. It wasn't powerful archaically. It was a typically small Greek city that came under the rule of an aristocratic family in the 8th century BCE. They were the Bacchiadae, of which Archias was one. During this period, the city oversaw the founding of settlements in the west, Syracuse being the main one, and with these colonies, Corinth grew in power to the point that it will be a major player in our continuing look at Greek history. The colony at Syracuse was situated on an island off the proper shore of Sicily, the island of Ortygia, which possessed two natural ports that were essential to the colony's success. The Great Harbor was one of the best ports on the eastern coast of Sicily, and by extension was one of the best Greek ports in the central Mediterranean at this early point of colonization. The specifics of this early time and place remain a bit hazy in the historical record. Basically, the colonies on Sicily grew during the 8th century BCE, pushing out the native Sicils and the enterprising Phoenicians by turn, solidifying the Greek hold on the island's eastern coast. We've painted the big picture of how the Greeks and Phoenicians were situated around 700 BCE, and although it's important to understand the broad strokes, we still aren't quite to the point where the more personal stories of history begin to bubble to the surface. In lieu of those, I thought it would be interesting to take a closer look at the mechanics behind the process of colonization as undertaken by the Greeks, and in an opposite manner to that undertaken by the Phoenicians, at least to a degree. There are some interesting points to be made here, and then we will wrap up by seeing what the works of Homer can tell us about the relationship between the Greeks and Phoenicians. I think that will prove interesting as well. In a way, those two items are related. Some of our understanding of the colonization process during this time is rooted in passages taken from the Odyssey. The interesting curveball here is that the quote I'm about to read is written in the Odyssey, but it makes reference to a mythical land and its founding, 
and it still applies for shedding some light on what we're after here. So in book six of the Odyssey, Homer describes the founding of a fictional colony like this. He says, quote, So the founder led them away, settling them in a place called Scaria, far from bustle of trading men. He ran a wall around the town, built homes, erected temples for the gods, and divided the land, close quote. Today, we will just focus on the process of how a Greek colony was typically founded, but the mythical or not-so-mythical land of Scaria is an interesting aside that I think I'll pop into a crew member episode here soon. I do have another one on deck for you as well, so some of our next few member episodes will probably be topics related to Greek colonization. Let's move on today, though, first. We mentioned last time how Greek colonies weren't typically as closely attached to a mother city as Phoenician colonies were, at least not in the sense that Greek colonies paid tribute to a mother city and had rulers appointed by the king of that mother city who were beholden to the king in their administration of the colony. The Greek colonies were much more in line with the Greek ideal that emerged during the time frame of the colonization boom, the ideal of the polis and freedom and democracy. Now, mind you, the democratic ideals that blossomed in Athens at a much later date weren't fully present this far back in Greek history. Rather, the typical polis would have been ruled by the landed aristocracy that we mentioned last time. They would have controlled a large portion of the arable land, while a majority of Greeks were forced to make do with the scraps. Last time, we met Hesiod and learned how his father had left the family home in the east to settle further west where more land was available. I hope that I didn't lend too much of an impression that it was easy for peasants to just pull up roots and move west in the style of an American westward expansion or something like that. There were some who managed to make it work, I'm sure, but the vast majority of Greek colonies were settled at the behest of a mother city. They referred to these founding mother cities as the metropolis of a colony. In the Greek, this word literally meant mother city, and it didn't carry the connotations that are attached to the word metropolis today. The Greeks didn't have in mind anything of the Superman-style comic book depiction of a modern global city, a la New York City or something like that. Regardless, over time, the ties of a colony to its metropolis would gradually weaken, especially as the ideas of democracy and liberty became more central to Greek political thought. That's all a bit far afield for us, but getting back to the quote from the Odyssey, we learn that the aristocratic rulers of a metropolis would elect a founder to undertake the voyage to found a new colony. This founder was called a catistes, which derived from the verb catistein, meaning to make habitable, to settle, or to found. So again, quite literal in that way. The founder would select a site for the colony, 
probably based on the knowledge that the city-state had gained thanks to previous ventures west, or possibly from pirates and marauders who'd also been active to the west. Then, the Greeks being religious as they were, they would typically consult the oracle for guidance. This practice was actually quite ingenious, at least from the perspective of the skeptic, on whether or not the oracle was actually bestowing supernatural advice. I say it was ingenious because of the way that the question to the oracle was typically framed, coming in a form somewhat like this. Is it preferable that we found this colony at the selected site, or is it preferable that we nix our plans altogether? If we uh, dig down beneath the surface of the question here, we'll realize that no matter the oracular reply, if the colony founding effort was greenlighted, the colonists would then always be able to tell themselves that it would have been worse if they'd have stayed home. So they would always have a way of justifying their ultimate decision based on the oracle's advice. Once they did ultimately decide to move forward with things, the founding party would normally consist of men only, who had to then gain wives from the locals by whatever means necessary, and the Greeks certainly weren't loath to take land and people by force. The Catistes would also be responsible for measuring and laying out the original site of the settlement, again, as the Homeric passage above describes. Temples were, of course, a priority, as were walls around a central area, and the distribution of farm plots so that the colony could become self-sustaining as quickly as possible. Although the Greeks did often pick sites rich in natural resources, it doesn't seem that the macro goal for the Greeks was to build a commercial network, as it seems that the Phoenicians had in mind. To get a little bit better grasp of the impetus behind Greek colonization, let's take a look at how historian Robin Lane Fox paints the situation in his panoramic history, The Classical World. This book is a great overview of classical history, by the way, for any of you that might be interested or who want a good basis of the period, but I digress. He paints the picture from the point of view of the aristocracy during the 8th century BCE. The population began to grow, of course, but on a more granular level, the aristocracy also had to deal with those few unpopular or troublemaking sons, along with any troublemakers from among the lower classes. From the perspective of the aristocrats, then, quote, when news arrived of good land abroad, it was attractive for the ruling class to choose a noble leader, collect or conscript some unwanted settlers, and send them away to try their luck. For Fox here, then, the main impetus for Greek colonization was to, quote, head off potential trouble at home, which might lead to a demand to adjust the unequal distribution of land. In this painting of the scene, then, you could say that colonization was the release valve for societal pressures 
that had begun to build up after the Dark Age ended and growth had begun again. One last point here before we move on to Homer. I feel as though I've made this point already at some point as well, but Fox reiterates the fact that Greek colonists and the mindset of their metropolis weren't centered on building trading posts per se, although they did build some of those along the way. They seem to have been more focused on expanding their spheres of control, as we see in the Greek proclivity to subjugate local people in the area around a new colony. In their use of those locals as slaves in many cases, but also in their control of the colony's site and their rush to take advantage of whatever local resources they could attain, including farmland. When we keep this overall mindset and seeming approach in view, and if we project it onto the timeline and colonization activities around Italy and the islands around the Tyrrhenian Sea, we begin to see the picture that the Greeks certainly had designs on a western route and on controlling that route. They seem simply to have been headed off at the pass that is the Strait of Sicily. In the coming episodes, we will flesh out the overall geographical strategery, as GW would have termed it, that took place as the Greeks tried to push west and the Phoenicians tried to cut them off, and they eventually began to compete for trade in the central Mediterranean. Now, though, let's get a bit more into Homer, the blind poet who I'm sure would be astonished to learn of the controversy that now surrounds the mere fact of his existence, his non-existence, and even his possible multiple personages melded into one. Or would he even have been surprised? I suppose if he never in fact existed, then he, by definition, wouldn't be astonished. But please just ignore what I just said and the stupid rambling musings there. The epics of the Iliad and Odyssey are perhaps more recognizably attached to Greek history than any other stories or works of literature, and for good cause. We talked quite a bit about the Iliad back in Season 1, since the story and source material for it likely had roots in the Bronze Age conflicts between the Mycenaeans and the inhabitants of coastal Asia Minor. The Odyssey purports to tell a story that begins where the Iliad left off, the tale of the hero Odysseus and the misfortunes that he suffered on his voyage to return to Ithaca. As we get into these two works now, I'll be coming at them from an angle that focuses on how they can inform our view of the maritime world during the 800s and 700s BCE, the time period when most scholars agree that these two works would have been put down in writing for the first time. There are several other great podcasts that covered these from a literary analysis style angle, working the history in there as well, so I think that we will stick to our typical approach here. Now, I just gave the window of time when the Iliad and Odyssey seem to have been first written down. Their physical embodiment, made possible by the infusion of the Phoenician alphabet, 
with a few additional letters into the Greek world. The important point right off here is that they describe events that had come down through the oral tradition. We can't ultimately know how much the epic myths may have morphed between the time of the events they describe, if they ever even occurred, that is, and then when Homer or his namesake may have finally written down the tales. What we can know is that the final form of the written epics combined the tales of heroes and enormous battles of the Mycenaean age with many of the details of daily practical life and reality as it existed during the 8th century BCE. What this all leaves us with is just another situation where we must parse the literature to try and discern the line that divides these two sources. And even in the cases where we can confidently identify the line, we must still then interpret the significance and ultimate application to a study of history. Over our last handful of episodes, going back even to those uh, where we looked at the Mycenaeans, we've pretty healthily covered the Iliad and what it can tell us about ships both during the Mycenaean time and afterward. What we haven't yet fully delved into is the Odyssey. It also can tell us quite a bit about shipbuilding, and there is one famous passage in particular that describes a boat being built by the hero Odysseus. As is tradition here on the podcast by now, the passage does also carry some controversy with it, but recent archaeological finds and scholarship may help us more fully understand the vessels being described in the Odyssey. I'm about to read a rather lengthy passage for you, the passage that describes Odysseus building a boat. The background to this passage is that Odysseus has been trapped on the island of Calypso for seven years, forced to spend each night in her seaside cave. Athena persuades Zeus to order the release of Odysseus, and after some argument from Calypso, she finally agrees to let him go. One final night, they both sleep in the nymph's grotto, and here is where the passage picks up. Dawn came early, touching the sky with rose. Odysseus put on a shirt and cloak, and the nymph slipped on a long silver robe shimmering in the light, cinched it at the waist with a golden belt, and put a veil on her head. What to do about sending Odysseus off? She handed him an axe, bronze, both edges honed. The olive wood haft felt good in his palms. She gave him a sharp adze, too, then led the way to the island's far side where the trees grew tall, alder and poplar and silver fir, sky-topping trees, long-seasoned and dry, that would keep him afloat. Calypso showed him where the trees grew tall, then went back home, a glimmer in the woods, while Odysseus cut timber. Working fast, he felled twenty trees, cut them to length, smoothed them skillfully, and trued them to the line. The glimmer returned, Calypso with an auger, and he drilled the beams through, 
fit them up close, and hammered them together with joiners and pegs. About the size of a deck a master shipwright chisels into shape for a broad-bowed freighter was the size Odysseus made his wide raft. He fit upright ribs close set in the decking and finished them with long-facing planks. He built a mast and fit in a yard arm, and he made a rudder to steer her by. Then he wove a wickerwork barrier to keep off the waves, plating it thick. Calypso brought him a large piece of cloth to make into a sail, and he fashioned that, too. He rigged up braces and halyards and lines, then levered his craft down to the glittering sea. Day four, and the job was finished. Day five, and Calypso saw him off her island, after she had bathed him and dressed him in fragrant clothes. She filled up a skin with wine that ran black, another large one with water, and tucked into a duffel a generous supply of hearty provisions. And she put a breeze at his back, gentle and warm. Odysseus's heart sang as he spread sail to the wind, and he steered with the rudder a master mariner aboard his craft. Sleep never fell on his eyelids as he watched the Pleiades and slow-setting Bootes, and the bear, also known as the wagon, that pivots in place and chases Orion, and alone is aloof from the watch of ocean. Calypso, the glimmering goddess, had told him to sail with the stars of the bear on his left. Seventeen days he sailed the deep water, and on the eighteenth day the shadowy mountains of the Phaeacians' land loomed on the horizon, to his eyes like a shield on the mostly sea. That is just a stunning passage of poetry, and it's a little bit long, but now we have a lot to unpack. My first thought here, though, is that Calypso got off a little bit lightly in terms of image and portrayal by Homer. Maybe that's because Odysseus wasn't the author of the Odyssey, since you know that if he were writing the story, he'd likely have had some harsher words for the nymph who held him captive seven years. All that aside, though, a controversy that centered on this passage is interesting to me simply for how much it's been argued about over the years. This initial controversy involves the debate about what type of vessel Odysseus was described building, was it a raft or was it a boat? Much of this debate centers on the proper translation of the Greek words themselves, but that debate necessarily includes a consideration of the descriptions given, such as how long the construction took, the various parts of the vessel that are described, things like the planks, the ribs, the mast and yard, this is really a debate on the technicalities, but maritime enthusiasts have always liked to draw about whether it's a boat or a ship, so why not extend that to a boat versus a raft debate too? I think that I personally lean more on the boat side of this debate, hence our title for the episode today, but please take no offense if you disagree with me. Apart from all that, though, a few more serious points stand out. 
The minor point involves the lines near the end of the passage, where Odysseus, the master mariner, watches the constellations so he can steer a steady course. We've seen the importance of celestial navigation to maritime capability already. It seems that the Phoenicians were pioneers here, passing on this knowledge to the Greeks as well. As the passage indicates, nighttime open sea sailing was now possible, although in a smaller ship or boat like the one Odysseus constructed, it was more typical to make landfall at night to rest and shelter from the elements that had buffeted the low, deckless vessel as it plied the rough seas. The style and construction of the boat transition us to our main point from the Odyssey passage, this point being the construction techniques described by Homer and what they may possibly indicate about the state of Greek shipbuilding in the 8th century BCE. Two nautical archaeologists have tackled the interpretation of the passage, each of them giving their best efforts to take the original Greek words of Homer the building techniques known to have been used in the distant past, and then the archaeological finds made thus far in history, and to tie them all together to try and discern which techniques are most likely for Odysseus to have used. To restate the goal, it could also be looked at as trying to deduce whether the boat Odysseus built was of a type that would have been built back during the Mycenaean age, when Odysseus supposedly plied the waters, or instead if it was a boat that the Greeks of Homer's day would have built. The argument proposed by nautical archaeologist Samuel Mark is that the Homeric passage from earlier describes a technique of vessel construction that is simple and easily accomplished by one man using only the tools that are listed in the passage, an axe and adds an auger, and a hammer. According to Mark, Homer describes a technique where Odysseus would have bored holes in the edges of each plank, then used short dowel rods to line the planks atop one another, and then drilled smaller holes along the tops and bottoms of each plank so he could use cord to lace the edge joints and tighten them down. This technique would have allowed Odysseus to drill all of the holes needed before beginning to assemble the boat, which aligns with the progression laid out in Homer's description. The process of building a ship or a boat with the mortise and tenon method that we've described in our looks at Egyptian shipbuilding, well, this method is more complex, it requires more tools, and it's generally more difficult or even impossible for one builder to accomplish on his own. In Egypt, or in the Mycenaean cities of the Bronze Age, shipbuilding was an entire industry unto itself, and it's mainly in these larger economies that more complex shipbuilding techniques developed. The true nature of the ship that Odysseus was described as building is a bit more complicated here, though. Despite the fact that other passages in the Iliad describe the ships whose planks are rotted and cords parted, Homer doesn't include any mention of Odysseus adding caulk or sealant to his boat, which if it were a cord-laced boat, 
some type of sealant would have been necessary for the boat to be seaworthy. It is entirely likely that Homer wasn't concerned about accurate representation of the intricacies of boat construction. He was, after all, a poet, and a blind one at that, if you buy into the nickname given to him. And in any event, he wasn't an engineer. And I don't know of any step-by-step instructions or descriptions of assembly that I would describe as poetic. In the end, as well, the description in Homer isn't the only problem if we want to conclude that Odysseus built a boat using a laced-style method. Many wrecks from the Bronze Age world take the Ulaburan wreck, for instance, the Khufu ship, many others as well. Many of these were built with a more complex mortise and tenon-style construction. The Mycenaeans were certainly acquainted with the style of construction, even if we haven't yet found physical remains of a Mycenaean ship. So how then are we to justify the conclusion that the Mycenaeans knew and maybe even used a more complex building method, while the evidence from Archaic Age Greece only indicates a construction method that is more rudimentary? The proponent of this theory that we've been outlining here explains the decline in sophistication like this. Where the Mycenaean world possessed the economy and skill to build more complex ships, the Bronze Age collapse had shattered their capability to construct complex ships, requiring specialized and focused numbers of craftsmen. The laced construction technique is much simpler and capable of being used by even a single, moderately skilled carpenter. So, Samuel Mark contends that the Homeric epics describe the ships of the writer's time period, the 8th century BCE, when the archaic Greeks were only capable of construction in its simpler forms. The mortise and tenon style lived on in Egypt and in the Phoenician world, so the contention is that it once was used in the Mycenaean world, that the collapse prevented the remnant peoples of the Aegean from being able to build in this style, but that when the Greek world began to rise again near the end of their archaic age, that the mortise tenon method was reintroduced thanks to their contacts with Phoenicia and Egypt. This theory isn't without holes, of course, but it does explain some of the more puzzling questions about why archaic Greece seems to have had reduced shipbuilding skills and why the Homeric epics don't seem to describe any shipbuilding method except for the more rudimentary laced style. For what it's worth, classicist and maritime historian Lionel Casson didn't fully buy into this theory proposed by Mark. Casson actually wrote a rebuttal to the paper where this whole theory was proposed in the first place. With academia being what it is at present, The rebuttal from Casson is ensconced behind a paywall set up by a publishing company, so I haven't been able to find it for free to see what arguments he actually makes in his rebuttal. Ultimately, while we may not have fully solid ground when we try to figure out shipbuilding techniques just on the basis of Homer's words in the Odyssey, 
The latter Homeric epic presents a more personal connection to sailing and the sea than the Iliad did. I like how classicist Edith Hall summarized the main thrusts of these two epics. She said, quote, If the Iliad gave the Greeks their sense of a collective past as warriors, the Odyssey gave them their archetypal descriptions of sailing and provided its itinerant hero with more diverse challenges. This is a good way to view the distinction, but we could also say that Hesiod himself took part in the early wave of Greek movement west and spoke to it in a more straightforward way, but the hero Odysseus is definitely the archetype of what Greek colonists were in the whole. The colonists needed to be resourceful, self-sufficient, skilled seafarers, shipwrights, and farmers, but also skilled leaders and, yes, even lovers, as Odysseus was certainly portrayed, they did have to populate a newly planted colony, after all. All of these points here are important to keep in perspective as you read the Odyssey and as we talk about the Greek colonists, but they are at a fairly high-level general point. As we wrap up here, I think that we should shift to another fairly high-level point that has some root in Homer, but also in other ancient Greek sources, including the histories. The final broad point gets back to where we began today, the way in which Greek colonization influenced the balances of power, especially in the central Mediterranean. As we've outlined by now today, the Phoenicians were first to the colonization party. They were the ones who really reconnected Greece with the larger sphere of trade and progress in the Iron Age, and by 750 BCE or so, the Greeks and Phoenicians had begun butting heads on the island of Sicily. The dynamic that would develop even further down the line between these two maritime powers is contained in the epics of Homer, so we know that it had already begun to take root in the 8th century BCE. So what did Homer have to say about the Phoenicians? which generally carried through, would have been the same general opinion that most 8th century Greeks would probably have had about the Phoenicians, at least the aristocrats anyway. Group stereotyping of any outside or other is not a new thing by a long shot, so the current state of the world isn't nearly as bleak as the news or Facebook would have you believe. Please don't buy into most of what they tell you. Anyway, the opinion and characterization of an other group as being something negative is also an indication of the inner struggles of the group doing the stereotyping, or it can be in many instances anyways. So what we're about to see from the Odyssey could reflect Greek resentment of the Phoenician success. It could also be a good indication of the tensions at play as the Greeks began to struggle in their attempt to gain control of trade from the already established Phoenicians. So let's get back to the text again. The most vivid and revealing passages that relate to Greek opinions of the Phoenicians come from Book 15 of the Odyssey, which is a part of the epic where Odysseus has returned to Ithaca and is still hiding out before he reveals himself back at home. He hides out with his old swineherd, a man named Eumaeus, 
and before Eumaeus even knows that this strange traveler is actually his old master in disguise, Odysseus shares the tale of his wanderings. Specifically here, he tells how he spent seven years in Egypt, reminiscing aloud, quote, I amassed much wealth among the Egyptians, for they all gave me gifts. But when the eighth revolving year was come, a certain Phoenician came, full of deceiving arts, a greedy sailor, one who had wrought much harm to men already. He now prevailed upon me by his lies, and took me with him till we reached Phoenicia, where his home and wealth were. Here at his house I stayed throughout the year, but after days and months were spent, as the year rolled and other seasons came, he sent me on a sea-bound ship sailing for Libya, falsely professing I should share his gains, but purposing to sell me there and reap a large reward. Apparently Zeus had other plans for the Libya-bound ship, and so Odysseus escaped the fate of being sold into slavery by a double-crossing Phoenician. You can see pretty clearly here, though, that Odysseus did not hold the Phoenicians in any high regard. Eumaeus the swineherd, in fact, suffered the fate that Odysseus narrowly escaped. His story to Odysseus, told the next day beside the fire, confirms the Homeric portrayal of the Phoenicians. When Odysseus asks the swineherd how he came to Ithaca, Eumaeus recalls his family's home on an island in the Mediterranean. Scholars haven't yet been able to connect the name he uses with an actual island, though. Nevertheless, Eumaeus says, quote, There Phoenicians came, notable men at sea, but greedy rogues with countless trinkets in their black-hulled ship. Now in my father's house lived a Phoenician woman, handsome and tall and skilled in fine work, and her the wily Phoenicians led astray. He told the story of how they promised to take her back to the land of her fathers if she helped them kidnap the child of her master, that child, of course, being a young Eumaeus. The Phoenician plan worked out, and Eumaeus ended up being sold into slavery in Ithaca, which brought him into the orbit of Odysseus's family. So as we start to wrap up our episode for today, we can go ahead and outline a few possible reasons for the Greek antipathy toward the Phoenicians, at least as it's revealed in Greek literature. We said earlier that it could be due to their growing competition for trade in the central Mediterranean during the 8th century, once the Greeks had begun to expand. I think it would be very foolish to discount this view entirely, but there may be other factors that contributed to the animosity. For instance, it could also be that the view of the aristocratic Greek elite had seeped into things. The aristocrats were known for their disdain of trade and business matters. The Greek upper class disdained the Phoenicians, but also traders and businessmen as in, in general as liars and opportunists, which would align with the words that a few Homeric characters tossed at the Phoenicians. It is interesting then, and I think it remains so today as well, 
that on a broad level, the aristocrats' access to luxury was and is largely made possible thanks to these merchants, traders, and businessmen, but that they look down upon these businessmen as inferior. I'm going to leave it all there, though. The Phoenicians did also catch a lot of flack from the Greeks because of the supposed child sacrifice practices of the Phoenicians. And although this topic doesn't fit well within our maritime focus, it's worth noting that recent archaeology has confirmed the presence of child sacrifice as a practice in Phoenician society, particularly in Carthage. This practice fluctuated over time in the Phoenician society depending on external circumstances to a degree, but it was certainly present. I mention this topic merely because it's also seen as a reason why the Greeks may have held the Phoenicians in disdain, and that it wasn't simply the commercial rivalry that brought these groups to view each other in a negative light. In the whole, though, it seems that the negative portrayal of the Phoenicians wasn't universal. We've seen how in many cases the Greek and Phoenician traders occupied the same sites and even traded with one another there. But if the animosity existed on an aristocratic level, this would help explain the animosity and its portrayal in literature at a higher concentration than it seems to have been found in archaeological evidence. That doesn't, of course, mean that the archaeology shows universal cooperation between these two cultures. It doesn't, especially as we begin to move forward in time. We will see the animosity between them materialize into direct conflict at various places and at various times. The Tyrrhenian Sea area was probably the main focus of their conflict. The Etruscans also got dragged in via alliances there, so we'll get to talk about those developments soon. Next time, though, I think we will shift our focus back east. Corinth entered the narrative today as the founder of colonies in the west, Syracuse foremost. Thanks to its location on the isthmus that connects the Peloponnese to mainland Greece, Corinth could control trade and transit from both east to west and west to east. It grew quickly, becoming a Greek maritime power, but at the same time the Ionian city Miletus and the Attic city Megara were busy establishing colonies in the east, becoming the first to heavily colonize the Black Sea. We'll work the development of ships in there as well, so the content will definitely continue to flow for us. I am tempted to quip about how the spice must flow, but Dune was a desert planet. At least it started as one, so not much maritime travel going on there. Anyway, thank you for listening through to the end today. Uh, It was a bit long of an episode today. And as usual, I've got a few housekeeping items to wrap up with. The traditional first few items involve reviews and new members, both of which you've likely heard me blather on about by now. I'll give you a slight reprieve from the typical, other than to say thank you both for iTunes reviews and for anyone who views the podcast as worth an investment of any sort or degree. 
I've got a few member episodes on deck, one or two related to topics of Greek colonization and such like that. For now, though, a big thanks to Skip, DN, and James for becoming our most recent crew members. Thanks also to iTunes user Magnus Pakater for leaving a kind review. Our first review from Norway, actually, which is exciting to me. Although I'm landlocked in the U.S. right now, the heavy concentration of people with Norwegian heritage in and around the Twin Cities has gotten me more interested in Nordic history, which is to say we won't be skipping over such topics lightly when we eventually get there. So thank you for the review again. Finally today, I wanted to share with you a project that I'm also excited about, a project that the podcast has been involved with for a few months now. It's called Boat Radio, and since it launched a few months back, the network has really taken off. Now, what Boat Radio is, is a network of talk shows created by and for boat enthusiasts, boat owners, sailors, really anyone who's interested in tales of the sea. Various programs on the network cover a wide range of topics that relate to maritime life and travel. Some cover practical aspects of life on a boat, like tips on how to run a good galley, or even simply what to look for if you're wanting to purchase a boat. Others are more interview-driven and tell the stories of people who've given up the landlubber life to live aboard a boat and travel the world. Then you also have a program dedicated to interviews and stories from the sail racing world, while yet another program centers on ocean research in the vein of topics like debris pollution, climate, and other areas that affect marine life and ecologies around the globe. Of course, also, our humble podcast here is rebroadcast on Boat Radio, too. But I want to really encourage you to go check out the other amazing and constantly growing content on the network. Stories are the focus, and they abound. So if you've tuned into the podcast here because you have a weak spot for the sea, then Boat Radio will definitely have plenty more programs to satisfy. I've added a link on the website, accessible from any page, but the show notes for today's episode will also get you there. Please do check it out, though. Uh, look for their page on Facebook as well and follow that for frequent updates on the programs. I think you'll be pleased with everything that you find on the network, and I think it's going to grow into something amazing. It's, it's already amazing, actually, but it's just going to continue to get more and more popular. Beyond that, though, our episode here today is at a wrap. I will have a member episode available soon, and I'll notify our supporting members via email of that. So check your email there if you're a member. We have an email notification list for our regular episodes, too. So subscribe to that on the sidebar of the website pages if you're interested. Otherwise... Thanks for sticking around today, and until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>